Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, please take your Bibles. Turn with me to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, we're going to be reading the second half of verse 18 down to 21. Verse 18 is kind of one of these awkward, weird verses. In the ESV, I think in a lot of translations, it gets split up. So I'm not exactly sure why that is. But we're picking up on the second half of that verse. Reading down to verse 21. And as one commentator described this particular passage, he says, This section marks off one of Paul's finest moments. And I would add a hearty amen. And then he adds this. And we are all the richer for it. And I love it. Having spent some time in these verses, I agree with that. These are indeed amazing words from the Apostle Paul. So let's, this morning, be enriched in Christ in every way as we read these verses with fresh eyes. And fresh ears this morning. Philippians 1, verse 18 through 21. This is God speaking to us. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And may the Lord anoint the preaching of his word this morning. Well, I don't know how many of you have been keeping up with the World Series. Down in Houston, it's kind of a big deal, although it's been kind of a drag the last few games. Um, and as much as I root for the Astros. I'm sorry if, if Billy was telling me he's, he has di- divided emotions about He loves the Astros, but he's not sure if he can cheer for them. That's allowed anymore. And I told him with the new manager, that's allowed now. You can't cheer for the Astros. That's without violating your conscience. As much as I root for the Astros, I, with a young family, I rarely get to sit down and watch four hours of a baseball game anymore. So what I do is I end up recording the game, and then it, maybe some of you have done this. I I join in well after it started. So the real game time is probably like the fifth or sixth inning, right? So I actually jump in then, and that way I can just skip my way through commercial breaks and when they decide to change up pitchers and everything else. Um, And so it helps save so much time. I love it. I think it's great. But there's only one problem. And if you do this, you know the problem. There's this temptation, right, to skip. You just want to... I don't want to watch the game, but I kind of want to know what happens, right? So you skip all the way to the end. And you just see, do we win or not? Am I going to sit through this and we're going to come to the end and we're going to lose? So you skip all the way in, you're like, okay, we win. All right, then you back up and then you start watching it because then you can enjoy it. And I know that probably makes me a bad fan. You can come talk to me afterwards and say, that's not a true fan. You just sit through the game if you know you're going to win. That's not what a fan is. I'll own that. That's bad fandom. I, I get that. I'm the guy that sits in the stands while we're getting blown out because I want to be a good fan, right? So I, I understand that. But 
in, in, in doing that, I don't know how it's all going to play out. Like, I don't know exactly what happens. But if I know that the score does the Astros ahead in the end, this is what happens. If I know that, that's whole time, that final score is flashing in the back of my head, right? So when the, when the starting pitcher goes out there and gets rocked and you're like, yeah, I know. But in the back of your head, you know what you're thinking? I know what the final score is. And when you hit into the double play and you think, oh my goodness, that was our chance to score. That was our chance to finally bring somebody in. And you think, oh man, you know what's flashing in the back of your head that whole time? But I know the final score. And so you know what happens? You're like, man, that's a bummer. But it, it really doesn't affect me that much because I know the final score. All of those things are just part of the journey to winning. And I can endure just about anything knowing that ultimate victory is not in question. I can enjoy just about anything. That makes all the difference. And the Apostle Paul is in the midst of that same experience. He's fast-forwarding to the end, and he knows the final score. It's flashing in the back of his mind as he faces this particular situation. And, and he's assured he knows he's going to win. And he's assured of that because of the gospel. That glorious news that has transformed it all for him. And it's so wonderful that it has the power to shift his perspective no matter what he's dealing with, no matter what may transpire along the way. And I know you guys, as a church, y'all have been exploring as well, just that foundation, how that message, it informs and it defines everything else for us, who we are and what we're to be about. And so my prayer has been that this particular text, that Paul's own testimony here in this text would serve you this morning, that it would, that it would serve your soul this morning, that it would come alongside you and it would spur on your own confidence in the Lord Jesus. That's why I've been my prayer this morning. This text would just literally wrap, you know, put its arm around you and encourage your confidence in the Lord Jesus, the things that we sung about and celebrated this morning, that we would see his accomplishment as so powerful and so relevant that it brings us an enduring joy despite our circumstances. Billy and I woke up this morning to get that text that Billy referenced. And it's heartbreaking. You just don't see it coming out of the blue that this dear brother is gone. And yet we look to Christ and we have that final score in our head. And it, it brings us an enduring joy and heartache despite our circumstances. So that's, that's one aspect. And then also that it would increase... It would increase our anticipation for finally being with him. Finally being with him. And all of that, all of that happens in our lives when we know at the start that we're on the winning side. That's what happens. That's what happens. And, the, and that's what we're going to be diving into today. The passage itself, it's dominated by one long sentence. It begins at the end of verse 18. And then it stretches all the way through verse 20. That's the first point. That's one big long sentence. Sometimes it's hard to notice that in between the verse numbers that get in there. I had to look closely. But it, at least in the ESV, that's one compound sentence. Just, just commas, 
This is a perfect Paul, just comma and throw in another phrase and everything else. So we're going to work our way through that from verses the end of 18 to 20. That's going to be our first point today. You'll see it in the handout. And in that, we're primarily going to be asking this question, how can we be sure of deliverance? In the midst of uncertainty. How can we be sure of deliverance in the midst of uncertainty? And then we'll finish by considering one of the more well-known verses in all the Bible. Verse 21. And we're going to be asking this question. How does the finality of Christ's triumph on the cross impact our present status? How does it impact our present status? If it helps... Sometimes I need shorter things than that. If it helps to have something short so you can remember those two points, I'd, I'd call them, I'd title them the bold prediction and the win-win. The bold prediction and the win-win. And given the historical context, you would understand it if at the moment both of those things might look and feel and sound a bit premature to the Philippians. It's helpful to remember that Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. You probably know that. He's still, he's still in this long, he's in the throes of a long, exhausting nightmare. Just follow, trace his, how he got to Rome. If you trace it, it all starts off by him going to Jerusalem to deliver a ministry gift to the churches there, a financial gift that they needed for those that were in poverty. So he gets there and then he had future ministry plans to leave there and go to Spain, preach the gospel in Spain. But those future ministry plans were completely submarined by a mob in Jerusalem who beat him, wrongly arrest him. There's all kind of plots against him. And then he had to appear before two Roman governors to give an account for, for why he's been arrested and the problems that he's causing. And at the end of it, neither one of those guys even knew exactly what he'd done wrong or what to do with him, frankly. And so they were very glad when he finally appealed to Caesar, like, thank goodness, you know, I can wash my hands of that mess. I don't even know what we're doing here. And so they just ship him off. He'd been kind of just contained, so to speak. He'd been in, detained in, in many ways with no real process. And so they were glad to ship him off to Rome. But even that journey, as you know from Acts, was a disaster in and of itself. Along the way, he has multiple brushes with death, all, all of which were, sometimes he had good counsel and people didn't listen to him and he still had to deal with the consequences. And then to cap it all off, once he finally arrives in Rome, he's a prisoner for the gospel. And there are believers in some of the churches there who are actively trying to attack him publicly as a way to make a name for themselves. It's unbelievable. So there's that. Welcome to town. You're here for the gospel, and rather than, than praying for you and coming alongside and encouraging you, people are actually actively maligning you to make a name for themselves. So that's been the journey up until this point. And this is where he sits. And the conclusion to this whole ordeal still is looming ahead of him. He has to stand up in front of Caesar, and he has to give a public explanation, a defense about the facts of Jesus. That's what's looming in front of him. In other words, he's scheduled to be the voice of Christendom before the most powerful man on earth. It's an unbelievable, unbelievable task. The outcome of his trial then has massive consequences, not only for him personally, but for every Christian who's living in the shadow of the Roman Empire, which would have been a majority at this point. So that's what he's been through. And that's what he's facing. That's what's still hanging over his head at the moment. The biggest presentation in church history. Tall task 
If you've ever been given an important presentation at work or in the classroom, you kind of know a little bit of what that feels like to have that looming in front of you. But rather, rather than shrinking back from it, instead he's here assuring the Philippians that he happily welcomes it. He happily welcomes it. And then he goes on to make a fairly bold prediction. Do we see that there at the end of verse 18 and 19, right? He says, and yes, I'm going to keep on rejoicing. Why? Because this, this, that's what he's referencing when he says this, this whole thing is going to turn out for my deliverance. That's why he's going to keep on rejoicing. This whole thing is going to turn out for my deliverance. I'm going to talk about a spoiler alert. That's a spoiler alert. This is what's going to happen. He tells them that his liberation is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. It's a bold prediction. And yet, as we're seeing, there's a major issue with that conviction, right? The outcome is still, humanly speaking, very much in doubt. There's a lot of variables in play. He could still be, obviously, found guilty. He could be sentenced to die as a threat to Roman interest. You never know what the outcome might be in this instance. That's a present danger for him at the moment. So how can he declare so confidently that he's for sure going to be delivered? Well, first, because the Philippians are praying, he says, it's through your prayers this will turn out for my deliverance. God, God delivering him may be certain, but it's not automatic in Paul's mind. God delivering him may be certain, but it's not automatic. It's going to come in response to the prayers, the intercessions of this local church. Their prayers in this mission are essential. This isn't him giving lip service to that. He really means it. He really means it. A praying church, a praying church then is going to change things that otherwise wouldn't change if they didn't pray. A praying church, they're going to change things that otherwise wouldn't change if they don't pray because that's how God moves. He moves in response to his people's prayers. And he's provided us as the church with a direct line to the throne of heaven. We have real authority on earth to change things through our prayers. And in this instance, the Philippians are using it. And it brings him such confidence. He knows they're praying. Second reason is very closely related we see here in the text. This is what happens When the church starts praying, God pours out the Spirit in response. He pours out the Spirit in response. That's the other means he lists here. With the help, too, of who? The Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul's help, then, is coming from none other than Jesus himself. That's who his help is coming from. That's who has come to his aid in this moment. Paul's not serving Jesus so much in this instance as he's being served by Jesus. What a savior we have that he would come and serve us in these instances and in these moments. This is with the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so Paul knows, he knows that Jesus is not only right there, which I think we kind of get, he's right there to help. He's a present help. And that brings him such confidence. How could this not turn out for my deliverance? if the deliverer himself is personally here to walk through this with me? How can it not, the personal assurance of knowing that Jesus is with him? 
And perhaps one other key to understanding his poise in this moment lies in his definition of deliverance. His definition of deliverance. What does he mean when he uses that word, deliverance? If you or I were facing trumped-up accusations, and we start talking about being delivered, then, then automatically we would all think about being acquitted from the charges, right? Being able to walk free as a free man. That's what any of us would be talking about. What else would we mean when we use that word? The term that he uses for deliverance here is an interesting one. It has something of a double meaning, which has stumped commentators over the years. It's the, it's the root term for soteriology. Some of you may know that word, the, the study of salvation, the doctrine of salvation. And so normally over, over the years, that word has been translated in Scripture, and rightly so, as salvation. Salvation. And it leaves us with this question, which version of the word is Paul intending to convey? Which one is he trying to say? Is he trying to say, I expect to be let go by the Romans? Is that what he's trying to communicate? Or is he saying, you know, I expect that God is going to complete my salvation if I'm, if I'm executed. Bring me into glory. Which one is he trying to convey to them? And the answer to those questions is yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, he does expect to be released. We'll see that later. And yes, he does expect God to finish his salvation. That's his eager longing. And because of that, in this speculation he's kind of walking through, I believe Paul intentionally picked. He picked a word, a play on words, if you will, precisely because it could mean either one of those things. It could mean either one of them. He has a pretty good idea. The verdict is going to go in his favor. He wants to see that. But he doesn't need for that to happen, for him to be delivered. Isn't that a place to be? Isn't that a place to be? He goes on to unpack that confidence in verse 20. He said, this is what I'm confident about. And we see that there, his eager expectation, his hope, is twofold. Two parts to the same idea. One stated in the negative and one stated in the positive. Not, not this, but that. Not this, but that. Negatively, he says, I know I will not be at all ashamed. And commentator Gordon Fee, he helps us to rightly understand that when he says this. In biblical Greek, By way of the Old Testament, shame normally carries the sense of disgrace that one will experience from failing to trust God. Or, to the contrary, that the humble who do trust will not experience despite present appearances to the contrary. That's that's what he's talking about. That's the shame that he's saying he won't have to face. That's gospel terms. We sang a little bit about that this morning in one of the songs. That's gospel terms because we have every reason, right, to, to face shame. Why do we not? Well, because this is gospel terms, right? Jesus took our shame. That's what's underneath it. And it's the same concept that the faces of, in Psalm, the psalmist describes in Psalm 34, verse 5, when he writes, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. What, how can sinners look to a holy God and our faces not drop? 
How can, how can shame not just cover us? Some of you have experienced that possibly. In the presence of the Lord, you just have sensed your own sin. You know what that feels like. How is that possible? That we look to him, and rather than shame, we experience radiance. We, we experience the fact that we know the confidence that we will never be ashamed. In other words, when we're looking to the Lord Jesus, when we're looking to what he has done, we're aware of, our, we're aware of all of those things. It's not that we're not. It brings us, though, a confident countenance. It brings us a confident countenance. The kind of confidence, happy confidence, that you see in our actions, that you hear in our voice. And it happens because we know where our confidence lies. And it's not misplaced at all. That's what Paul is referring to here. My confidence is not misplaced. I'm not going to be ashamed. The outside world may look at my hope in Christ, and they might, they might think that it's a fool's errand. Why would you take that risk? Why would you willingly place your future in the hand of another? But don't forget this. Back when he was Saul, Paul had witnessed this, right? He'd seen it up close. He had seen the radiant face of Stephen. He had seen him being stoned. So he knew. He was standing close enough by when that happened. And so he knew from his own experience what the face of a man trusting in Jesus looked like. Even even as he was falsely condemned. Even as he was being attacked. And because of Jesus in his place, far from being filled with shame and fear in that moment, he was beaming. He was beaming. And you had to know when Saul left that day, he was furious. You had to know it made a mark on him. He knew that something was was different about this message. And so that's the negative part. He knows in the gospel now, having met Christ face to face, he he realizes what Stephen was experiencing that moment. He will not be put to shame in all of this. But then he goes on to talk about the positive aspect of his bold prediction. See that there at the end of verse 20? It's not this, but it's this. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the positive outcome that he's after. It's the, it's the opposite of the shame. Now, now not, not his own honor is, is what the outcome, but the honor of Christ. That's what he's after in this moment. The honor of Christ And what it looks like in his life is first and foremost, courage. It looks like courage. It takes courage to honor Christ in a fallen world. It takes gospel courage, that kind of assurance that we have in Christ. Full courage, in fact. The kind that can handle adversity. Bumps in the road without flinching. Why? Because you know what's up ahead. You know what's around the bend. And shortly in verse 28, he's going to exhort the Philippians themselves that they are to not be frightened in anything by their opponents. And so he sets forward his own consistent example in this verse. He sets it forward. He says, look at this. This is something you should emulate. This is how what your life together should look like. Living for his glory with full courage, despite whatever circumstances. May come, and we know that living that way, living for Christ, standing for Christ, is costly. 
it's costly. Not only does it mean that we sacrifice our pride, right? First thing that has to go is pride, which is the last thing we want to let go, right? First thing that has to go is pride. But then we also, we also have to shift our priorities increasingly to align with his. So, that, so it's costly in those ways. But it may also increasingly, even in our own context, put us in harm's way. As we follow and stand for Christ. Our brothers and sisters in church history, they understood this. There's rows around the world right now. Some of you may know personally they were familiar with that risk. And we're starting to feel how precious it is for him to say something like, in my body. Christ to be honored in my body. We understand just how, how an intimate a way of putting that is. He could have said, in my ministry, right? You know, we, we, we would understand that. But he says, in my body. That's deeply personal, to put it in those terms. And it means that he views even his own physical body. Not as a means of satisfying selfish passions. Not as a spiritually neutral container of his soul. That's not what he's thinking about. He views his own body as a vessel. A vessel to be used and given for the glory of Jesus. That's, that's the confidence that he has. That's a positive outcome that he sees in this situation. My body, it's a, it's a vessel. It's a means to an end. It's not for my own sake. It's for the sake of Christ. And so, and so however he thinks is wise for me to use it, that's what I'm after here with full courage. With full courage, I know I'm not going to be put to shame if that's my disposition in all of this. He realizes what Christ has done for him. This is a man who knows just how secure he is in Jesus. And so even if the worst case scenario were to play out for him personally, he hasn't lost his deepest longing. His deepest desire in this world is to see Jesus exalted. That's what he wants more than anything else. And so bringing him maximum glory, that's what he's celebrating about this moment. That's what he, rather than shrinking back from it, you know why he's welcoming it? He says, this is an opportunity. Not many of these come around. I get to stand and bring him the most glory I possibly can. That's what I most want from this. I want to take advantage of it. Just like I want to take all the other, advantage of all the other moments, right? He says, now as always. This, my whole life has been about this, about him since I've met him. And that's what I want to see coming from this moment. And so as we begin to put this whole long sentence together, we see why he's so confident. His prediction is broad enough to be right. It's broad enough to be right. It's, you can make a prediction that broad boldly. It'd be like me saying, you know, my bold prediction tonight is that we're either going to win, lose, or tie the game. That's my bold prediction. I'm going to go out on a limb and just state that now. I'm going to tell you the outcome. It could be one of those three. And you're going to look at me and you're going to say, that's, that's really a bold prediction. That's a hot take right there, isn't it? It's not really that bold, right, if you make it that broad, if you encapsulate everything. Well, whether by life or by death is pretty broad. It encapsulates a whole lot, doesn't it? It includes all these possible outcomes and collects them all up and it captures all of the what-ifs that he's dealing with. 
And it says that any of those scenarios, any of them, is going to bring me joy and it's going to bring Christ honor. That's what's in front of me. That's what's in front of me. That's why I'm so confident. And don't, don't we, listen, don't we need to have that same assurance in our day? Don't we need to know that? How many, how many of our days are dominated by the what ifs? How many of our days? How, how often do fears about the future leave us in present bonds? Leave us tied up? Perhaps we aren't facing the prospect of martyrdom like Paul. These past few years, with all the uncertainty and the chaos they've brought, that, that's enough to make people who aren't even naturally anxious begin to feel a little uneasy, right? Just to feel a little uneasy. I know I've, I've experienced that along the way. I saw a stat even this morning that, that anxiety and depression, like that, that reporting of that has tripled in the last couple of years. Reports about that among young people especially. And they're, they're just captured and in, in, in bondage to those things. Maybe in ways you've even feel, feels like you're in that prison cell with Paul. I know what it feels like to be dreading whatever fate may be around the bend. I know what it's like to live under a looming cloud of what might be cringing at what might be coming down the pipe next. What I might wake up and read. What I might experience. Well, that's you this morning. And I want to encourage you. I believe the Lord would want to encourage you personally. We talk about coming alongside you and putting his arm around us. The Lord Jesus does that. He does it in his word so well. He does it in his word so well. And I believe that's what he's doing right now, even in our midst. That the spirit of the Lord Jesus is here, just like he was with Paul. He's here to help us with his word, to bring us that same assurance. Brother and sister, let me encourage you this morning uncertainty does not put your deliverance in question. Uncertainty does not put your deliverance in question. Our salvation, your salvation, it can handle the rocks. It, can, it, it isn't going to break up when it hits one. It's going to keep moving forward. And so we too, and I pray you too this morning, can face your own future. With some of that, we're not going to do it perfectly, right? But more of this bold confidence, not in us, not in a particular outcome, but through prayer, through the assurance that Christ is personally with us and that we have nothing to fear and everything to gain in him. And as we unreservedly give ourselves for the sake of Christ Jesus, that is our confidence. And what undergirds that assurance this morning is the second point. There is a win-win. There's a win-win. That's, that's, verse, that's, that's the second half of this verse. This is not him, Paul being, as some of his accusers claim, finally cracking up. Along the way, he's accused of that in the trial. This is Paul finally lost it. This is Paul, verse 21, is Paul living out the very logical implications this is him being very logical. The very, the very logical implications of a victory that's already been won. This is him living in light of that. This is a man who so understands the good in the good news. And who so loves the Savior and understands how much the Savior loves him. 
that he can apply that gospel to any potential situation. And he still understands how he comes out as the winner. That's what he's doing here. This is a potent formula. This is about as potent a formula as you could ever discover. It's a towering peak, I think, in the New Testament. Verse 21, for to me. That's an emphatic point. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In the original, there's this perfect parallel. That's, that's what you see in the original. It's even more striking. It's simple, but it's, it's potent. It says literally, to live, Christ. To die, gain. That's, it's just a simple form. It's beautiful, but it's this entire Christian experience in six words. And he knows. This is the logical implication. Talk about living that out. If Christ has already won, and I'm united to Christ, then there's no version of this story where I don't come out on top. That's what he understands. That's what he's saying. If Christ has already won, and if I'm united to that victory, then there's no version of this story where I don't come out on top. And it's not wishful thinking on his part. This is objectively speaking, because of Christ, now there's no way he can lose. There's no way he can lose. And it's worth us considering then what gospel victory looks like. What gospel victory looks like in both of those instances. Because we don't want our experiences to somehow tempt us into doubting our ending. That's what we don't want, our experiences to tempt us into doubting that. And so when he says, for to me to live is Christ, he's going to go on and unpack what that looks like in verse 22 and following. It doesn't mean for him then freedom. It doesn't mean, it does mean freedom, but not a comfy, cozy existence in that sense of freedom, where he gets to just kick back and go on vacation. It's been a hard few years, guys. I'm going to check out for a while. I'll be back. You know, once I've kind of recovered from this whole thing, which we would all understand, we'd say, sure, take whatever time you need, right? You know, it's a, you're Paul, do whatever you need to do. If you need a sabbatical, take a sabbatical. But instead, what's he doing? He says, for me to live as Christ, I'm going to get right back to work. I'm going to get right back to work. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the day they say innocent. And I'm already thinking about what I'm going to be doing that afternoon. I'm already making plans. I'm already scheming how I'm going to get back to you to see your faces again. Just to, just to be with you, to be in your presence and encourage you. And I'm already thinking how to help you navigate. As a local church, you got some things you need to be working on. here. I can't wait to be there personally to help walk you through it. I'm sending this letter, but I want to get there personally and help you make progress and joy in the faith. Getting to stay here. And be a part of that. Living is Christ. That's a win for me. And so, and so certain victory then, it doesn't mean cruise control. Certain victory doesn't mean cruise control. It means we roll up our sleeves. It means to live as Christ. Happy labor alongside others for the sake of the gospel. Joining in, striving with others to see that advance, that goal reached. Winning rarely looks like a clean uniform. It rarely does. That's, if you got a clean uniform, you're on the sidelines. Victory, gospel victory, living as Christ, looks like mud stains and bloody elbows. 
That's what it, it's what it looks like. And it's a beautiful sight. It's a wonderful sight. It always requires effort, right? It always requires sacrifice. The things we, oh my goodness, really? That? It always requires working together with that person that, man, I'd, I'd rather not work together with that particular personality type. Well, I'm this personality type, they're that person. That'd be great if we, didn't, if we didn't have to work together so closely. It always requires effort, straining, striving. And so if he remains here in the life of a local church, that's what to live as Christ looks like. Faithful, faith-filled, fruitful ministry. And then on the other side, he says, we can even now see death as a victory. This is, this is a conquest to Paul now. This is, when he talks about to die, and this is not his version of escapism. Put, put to rest the idea that he's, he's just tired. I think, I think some people have said that along with, this is not that. This is a man fully alive in this moment. He, he's excited about remaining here, and yet, so this is not him tapping out in the least. And yet, when he says to die is gain, he's deliberately using a financial term. He's using a financial term for the word gain there. Historically, it's, it would have been what we understand as profit. You know, what you have left over at the end, what, the, the gain that you didn't have before you started this whole venture that you get on the other side. After you pay off all your bills and you take care of the overhead, this is the gain. And in light of Christ's resurrection, death now becomes the means of securing that gain. We talk about secure investments. They, they're guaranteed to pay out. Well, death and taxes, as we know, 100%, right? Taxes may not pay out. Death's going to pay out. 100% of the time, it's guaranteed. That's how soundly Christ crushed death at the cross. That's the finality of what he, ha- or what he accomplished there. That's, that's, it puts us so far ahead. It's a run rule kind of deal. It puts us so far ahead. Even our former fears and foes, the things that used to take and bully us and rob from us, now they too must serve our joy and well-being. They must serve it. And in this instance, that bliss is so close, so tangible. That's almost teasing Paul. Saying, I, I can almost taste it sitting in a prison cell. The Spirit is here with me, and I can almost taste it. And to die then, to win. Because it means I get to be with Jesus, the one I was made for, one who loved me and gave himself for me, one who is the brilliance of the glory of God. One who's promised he's not going to leave me and forsake me. One whose smile is going to fill me with joy unimaginable. He is the gain. He is the victory. And if that's the breathtaking end for Paul and for us as believers... And it makes all the difference in how we view and use our daily lives here. Let's start our friend Gordon Fee again as he's talking about Paul's passion. 
He says, having been apprehended by Christ Jesus. I love that phrasing. He's been apprehended by Christ Jesus. Christ has become the singular pursuit of his life. Christ, crucified, exalted Lord, present by the Spirit, coming King. Christ, the one who as God emptied himself and as man humbled himself to death on the cross, whom God has now given the name above all names. Christ, the one for whom Paul has gladly suffered the loss of all things in order to gain him and to know him, both his resurrection power and participation in his sufferings. Christ, the name that sums up for Paul the whole range of his new relationship with God. Personal devotion, commitment, service, the gospel, ministry, communion, inspiration, everything. And if Paul is executed, that means the goal of all his living will have been reached. He will have finally gained Christ. Brothers and sisters, he is our victory. And I hope that we can see this morning that because of Jesus, because of who he is, and because of what he has done, and because of who he presently is with us even now, and what he has promised in the future, I hope that we can see this morning that we are right now sitting in the midst of a win-win. We're in the midst of a win-win. And what a gift it is to know that And I pray that increasingly ushers in this peace and joy and courage and a passionate purpose into our hearts and into our lives together, into our homes and into our churches. We are those who get to honor Christ and not in a a superficial way, but in an in our body way. We are those who get to be with him and to see him face to face. And so we don't spend too much time getting hung up on every ball and strike. We look up and we see the banner already hanging. And we know that's our team. And so we look to him when times are good. And they're finally going our way. We look to him In the mornings, it doesn't make sense. And we aren't sure which way is up anymore. We look to him in the ordinary stresses and strains, the daily repetitions of a life lived here for the glory of Christ. And make no mistake, it's oftentimes just repetitive. And we look to him as we cross that great river, knowing that there's gain on the other side. I know that's what Sovereign Grace Church Midland is all about. I know your pastors. I know that's their heart. And that's why we're proud. It's why we love being named alongside you. Because this is your hope. This is your joy. And that is why we love to be in the partnership of the gospel together with you. This is our heart too. We're looking to. And the faces of all those who look to him 
they're radiant. They will never be ashamed. So we join with Paul. And we add our own emphasis to the very beginning of that phrase. I love that it's emphatic there. We can add our own emphasis. I'd encourage you to do that. that read this verse. Internalize those first three words. For to me. For to me. Not to somebody else, but for to me. Because of what Jesus has done. I make it my own. For to me to live, to stay here. And it's Christ. And when the day is done, when it's my turn, what a gain. What a gain. See. See how radiant that brings your face. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you. That even as we lift our gaze, it's your word and your spirit that is, that is revealing to your glory and the glory of the gospel and the message that we have received in Christ Jesus. You are the one lifting our gaze. And so we give you all the praise. Lord, I do want to pray for anyone here this morning who's really wrestling. It's been a season of wrestling, of uncertainty. Not sure exactly what things are going to look like. And that's just affected their, even their joy in you. They feel that, that bondage. Spirit, I pray, would you just come alongside them? Speak to them. Help them to see the inheritance that's waiting for them. Strengthen them this morning. And I, and I pray your, your blessing, Lord, your favor on this church. I, I pray, Lord, that you would just continue to do what you're already doing here. It was so evident, even this morning as we were singing, Lord, that you are, you are building this church. They are living for the Lord Jesus Christ. You're building it on the gospel. I pray that you would continue to, to bless them richly in that, in every way. And Lord, I pray that you would bring them that joy of knowing and that heart of being with you in ever-increasing ways, that longing, increasing that anticipation of seeing you face to face. And I pray that you'd be honored in this body. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.